0: Good morning. It's nice to see you. Tom gave me the opportunity to be with you for a couple of weeks while he's away. And uh, this is the second week. Last week we talked about um, uh, in this series of fender benders and traffic delays. Last week, the fender benders, when they hit you and It's more than just a little, you know, ding in the car. It's like changes your life forever. And some of you have been affected by those kind of things. It might be in a car accident. I was back um, in Minnesota with family a couple of months ago and talking with my niece, who's my, uh, my cousin, actually. And her husband was killed in a motorcycle accident about four years ago. She's remarried, but she was talking to me saying, I just can't get over what happened to Mike. I'm married, but I'm stuck back with Mike, who's dead. And sometimes fender benders are like that. They just change everything forever. And it might be somebody died. It might be that, you know, you're changed in the sense of maimed or harmed in some way. Your health is not the same. And so how do you get through those things? And last week we talked about one of the provisions God gives us to mourn the, that which is lost. And so if you weren't here last week and you're like, wow, I think I like that message better, then you can download it and uh, I, I suggest maybe you listen to it. This week on this process of, of the, uh, the, the journey, we want to think about traffic delays, namely detours. When God takes us the long way around, anybody like detours? You know, you're already running a little bit late, and then, you know, there's a detour, and it changes the whole scenario. Go the long way around. Sometimes it's a couple of miles out of the way and a few blocks, or you're a little bit late for where you were getting, and sometimes it seems like it's forever. Uh, This detour is not ending I thought we were headed here. We seem to be going in exactly the opposite way. And that's what I want to think about, not the little few minutes off that you don't really remember or recall, but the one that maybe you feel like you're on now. You know, you had a clear sense, or you thought you did, of where your life was going, and God was in that mix, especially. And now it seems to be going veered off, hard right, hard left, even backwards from that. And you're like, you know, where did I screw up? What did I do? you probably got friends like Job had who are trying to explain to you what you did wrong. And maybe you did. You haven't been perfect. But it's been one stinking long detour. This isn't what I thought it was going to be. By definition, a detour is a long or roundabout route that's taken to avoid something or to experience something new along the way. And it's usually unexpected. I might add, almost always unwelcomed. Seldom do I ever appreciate a detour, and the longer it is, the more frustrating. Yet, if it's from God's perspective, that there's something that He wants me to avoid or something He wants me to experience, what I see as a detour may well be very much the journey. I think of C.S. Lewis wrote this in his book, Four Loves, let us suppose that we are doing a mountain walk to the village, which is our home. And at midday, we come to the top of a cliff where we are in space very near to our destination. It's just below us. We could drop a stone into it. But as we are no cragsmen, we can't get down. And so we must go a long way around, five miles maybe. And at some points in that detour, we shall statistically be much farther from the village than we were when we sat up above the cliff. But only statistically, in terms of progress, we shall be far nearer. We don't see it as God sees it. I fight going that way. Let me go back. This is the way, this is the way to go. And you know, Proverbs 16 9 says, as much, it's in the heart of a man, a woman, it's in the heart of us to make a plan. But it's the Lord who directs our steps. And sometimes it's five miles out of the way, and that's frustrating. We might miss a meal, be late for dinner, miss an appointment. Sometimes it's much longer. What about when it's 10 years or longer? I think about the people in the Bible who've really made their way into these pages. There were a lot of people over history, and in these 1,600 or so years at this point, book was written, but the ones that fill up more and more pages had longer and longer detours. It's my experience as I look at them. One is, maybe the longest is Moses at 40 years old. He gets a really clear vision. I'm not an Egyptian, I'm an Israelite. And my call is to free the Israelites, like, you know, there's millions of them. And so he goes right at it and slays one of these abusive Egyptians and then goes into a wilderness for 40 years. That's a long detour, 40 years. I, I, you know, you get some window into what he's thinking along the way, but I, you know, it's only a few pages. But imagine being 40 years, um, not just not seeing it, but seeing the opposite of it. And all the time he's right where God would have him. David gets this call. But it's seven years of running for his life from Saul, the king, before he steps into it. Seven years. That's a long detour. Saul of Tarsus, later Paul, gets this really powerful call from God, and he goes away. He first starts to go to work, and then God takes him away for three years into Arabia. That's a long detour. Joseph... Is seventeen when he gets this really powerful vision from God that he's going to, you know, rule and people will bow down to him and such. And then it's thirteen years in prison. I used to really hate when I ran into people in prison who were there for something they didn't do really, uh, or have had injustice in some way. And those people are out there. Because like, what, do you, what can you say to him? How can you defend God in that? And the longer I live, I, when I see people who are in a type of prison, a long detour, there's something now more that draws me to them. Like, wow, God has something way bigger than you see in your destination. That this is a critical part of the journey. Because at 17, a snotty nose Joseph who wants to taunt it in front of his brothers is not equipped to lead a nation out of a famine. But at 30, 17 years in prison, for something he didn't do, he was. It's a long detour. It just depends on the destination. And when we look back at this thing, we're really grateful for people who, who took the journey. Like, wow, if you, if, if you had stopped at... 39 years and just given up, Moses. What would have happened or not happened? Or David? Or Paul? Or Joseph? Or you? And as I think about this, you know, I was around 24 when I really felt God called me out of, you know, I was a stockbroker and, and um, called me to work with, with leadership kids. Um, I didn't know they'd be kids in jail at that time, uh, but they were and, and have been. And so I had a lot of ideas and vision, and Hannah and I did, and, and part of where God placed us was in a home with a group of them for about 10 years. Uh, they revolved through. We were the only constant. And um, it was, Brian is one of the, he's one of the kids that was here at that time. He's now, how old are you, 34? Oh, so it must be, it must be older. <laughs> and um, I think he could attest to you that I wasn't very good at it. I, I mean, I was not just not very good at it. I, I was many days destructive in it. And I would always pray that God would just get rid of this kid. Then things will certainly get better here. <laughs> because he just, you know, and it was delinquent, so we didn't have a lot to work with. But there was always a worst one. And they would be gone, and somebody else would be just as bad or worse. And after about five years, I figured out this isn't going to change. But do I have to be this angry every day? And do I have to be this controlling and this miserable and this uh, uh, destructive every day? Maybe there was a different prayer that was needed, and that was like God changed me because I was the only constant over those 10 years. And that was a shifting point, began a shifting point. It wasn't the end of a shifting point. The end is not still here. But I don't know what sort of thing you're in that feels like a detour. But I wonder if it might be that the calling or the destination is too big for who you are right now. And that your character isn't sufficient to the call. And so God is taking you on a detour, a wilderness, a place so that your character can match your call. That's the case for all of us. I know that. I just finished this book on um, how to engage with people for transformation and, and sometimes when I talk about that, people say, well, that's God's job to transform, and I know that it is, and that you know he, the, seed, the, the uh, seed won't return void and so forth. Uh, and yet, there's a story Jesus told where seed does return void. Three out of four seeds planted return void. They don't produce anything. It's a good seed. It's the gospel. It's God's word. It's his, everything of God is in that seed, but it produces nothing. But one soil that does produces 30, 60, and 100 times. That's God's kind of work. He just multiplies. But the condition of that soil is one that has to be disturbed and weeds have to be extracted. And it sounds rather benign if you're gardening and all that. You know, you, dirt is, doesn't get offended by being disturbed. And it doesn't get take it personally when you pull weeds out. Hey, that's mine. You know, what are you doing with that? But people do. When you start to extract things from people, we get offended. Hey, what are you messing with that for? Hey, don't touch that. Leave that alone. you got enough of your own. And when we start to disturb people, and God starts to disturb us, and things start to get roughed up, then that really gets personal. Like, what are you doing? Why are you doing that to me? And... That's the only soil that produces, and it's part of the wilderness, and it's part of the journey, and it's part of what sounds like a detour. So I want to look in that light at Romans 5, uh, just one little snippet, verses 1 through 5. And it it starts off like this, and it's, you know, sort of picking up a third the way into this letter... And so it starts, therefore, which means that you really have to have in mind everything up until then, which we're not talking about everything up until then. But Paul says, therefore, in light of all of this, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. That's all one sentence. But it's a loaded one. It's full. And I don't want to spend most of the time this morning on that only to reference that. Paul says, this is who you are in Christ. Justified. Filled with peace. Made right with God. Having gained access by faith. Standing in grace. And rejoicing in hope. That's who you are. And he does great things. Uh, consistency around this. In all of his letters, he spends most of the whole first part of it telling people who they are. The work that we get to do with kids, and it just is one uh, segment of kids out of jail, it's the most important work we do, and I don't think we do it particularly well a lot of times, and that is around this. Who are you? Kids say all the time, I don't know who I am, if not a gang member, if not a thug, if not a delinquent, I don't know who I am. This is who you are, and maybe you wonder the same thing. I don't know who I am. Uh, I've always gone to church, um, I'm a pretty good person, but this is who you are. You're not as you thought. This is your position as a full-fledged son or daughter of God, and that's really clear. None of the rest of it. It is very relevant. I have to gather that and grab that. Watch, Mani said, this is our position in Christ. All of us fully arrived in one sense, seated in the heavenly places, uh, reconciled with God, imputed righteousness into my account. I, I've, I couldn't get closer than I am in terms of relationally to him. Um, it's all there in, in a moment when I'm transformed uh, if anyone's in crisis, a new creation happens in a, in a moment in time. And yet, we would look around at each other and ourselves and say, huh, it looks, I, I get that, but it doesn't feel like that. It doesn't look like that in me. It certainly doesn't look like that in you. Uh, there's something, disconnect from reality. Our position and our condition are not One as of yet. And they will never get completely one this side of eternity. But there is a process that God's about and it's what I want to think about in the remaining minutes. It's the last part of this paragraph. It's the journey. It's what is sometimes we could say in this context the detour. For we also glory in our sufferings because we know That suffering, produces perseverance. And perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope will never disappoint us. So the good news and the bad news. Rejoice in suffering. I don't think we're supposed to be, like, sadistic, looking for it and all that kind of, you know. And and how many of you actually, your job is to relieve suffering and somehow. People suffering with their computers or they're suffering relationally. That's your job. You get paid to make things suffering go away. Or maybe it's uh, suffering of financial problems or health problems. Your, your job is to relieve people of suffering. I would say, well, that really is my job. It's what I do every day. Yeah, praise God for that. And it's not bad that when suffering comes that I try to avoid it. The Bible says a lot about avoid certain things. Avoid temptation. That's going to create a lot of suffering. Um, Avoid certain kinds of characters and people. You know, they corrupt your character. So avoid things. And when you come to it, you don't, like, have to just embrace it all. You can just leave, flee, sometimes it says, these things. And it's not bad to ask God to remove suffering either. You have not because you ask not. So ask him to take it away. And a lot of times he does praise God, he just removes it i've seen even, I've even seen him remove the temptation for people who've been addicted for years and could never get free and they ask God to remove it, and he removed it and praise God for that, but it doesn't always work. Sometimes you hit this thing, and it 's an obstacle that is not going away it's sort of like um You know, if I come down here and you're walking along and, you know, and he's removed many different things. But then you're at this one and like you can't get around it and you really can't avoid it because you're going this way. And everywhere you go, it just keeps showing up. And maybe that is the one that God wants to use to change you, possibly. Maybe it's called your husband, your wife, your child, one of your kids. Um, They might have a name, very personal it might be, you know, like I was in this house that I, I used to pray, God, kill me before I do something really destructive. And it was not a uh, light prayer. It was a very serious prayer. Cause yeah, I don't know if you've ever been where you know you're capable of doing something worse than you ever imagined, and you could, you're sort of feel you're on the edge of it even. And the, the best prayer is, God, I really don't want to disgrace your name, Everybody who else is associated with me or them. So I feel the best way is just to take me out now. Yeah, I prayed like that. And he wasn't going to answer that either, didn't seem. So then, God, use this problem or this suffering to change me. I'm not going to avoid it. I'm not going to get relief from it. I'm not going to um, be able to flee it. So use it to change me. And this is... I think the first step of the transformation. the word "suffering" is literally uh, sometimes, if you have a Bible, it might translate it as um, uh, uh, trials, problems, um, those kind of things. But Second Corinthians describes it this way. It's the same word. Second Corinthians. One. And by the way, th- this little snippet of Romans 5, 3 through 5, I think 2 Corinthians is a whole expansion of these three verses. So if these really grab you and like, wow, I wish you'd say more, 2 Corinthians says a lot about how to engage suffering. It starts off in chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians 1. Paul describes it here, verse 8. We were under such great Pressure, this is actually the word, pressure, uh, suffering, beyond our ability to endure, far beyond it, so that we even despaired of life. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. So he's talking about a pressure that's like making you, Paul's describing as, as close as you can say that he's suicidal in his thinking. I wanted to die. It was beyond our ability to endure it. So we despaired even of life. So whatever you or I are going to, as tough as it might be, um, we, we probably could say Paul was in that. Different situation. We don't know what his is. That's the beauty of 2 Corinthians. You can, like, fill in the blank. People have tried to discern by chapter 12, what is this thorn in the flesh? and Well, it must have been a sickness, it must have been a temptation, it must have been a character. Well, you can put all that in there because it's really not clear. I I had a professor in seminary who did his whole Ph.D. on that one passage. And at the end, his conclusion was, I guess it could be all of the above, which is good news. Paul understands so when I get to this point where I say, God, change me, something unique happens. And it's sort of like all of a sudden, it's a step up. And I don't really realize I'm a step up. It doesn't feel like I'm a step up, but I've embraced it. We rejoice. it rejoices not ha-ha, happy. It's like it's hugging the cactus. It's just, it's just I'm here, and I'm with you, God, and you're with me. And something happens that now suffering produces perseverance. There's a patience, sometimes it's translated, endurance, sometimes it's translated. Here it's perseverance. But all of those, you know, it's, it's a step up on it, and it's a change in me. If you know patient, persevering people, they're not usually real young. They've been through a lot of things. Because uh, it's only produced that way, but here's again the the definition of it. You could get more clearly in the book of Second Corinthians. the The Greek word is do, uh, uh, dokamai. and no, it isn't. It's hupomone, perseverance. Some of you say, "No, he's wrong." I know Greek. He's wrong. Oh, it's a woman in my church who um, is Greek, and so I get. She's always correcting me on these things. <laughs> Suffering, when I can step into it, produces perseverance, hupomone. But it's really more than patience or endurance. It's an active overcoming. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7. Here's the same word, Hupomone. We have this treasure in jars of clay. It's to show that this all-surpassing power comes from God and not us. For we are hard-pressed. That's really the the word hupomone, hard-pressed. On every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus might also be revealed in our body. It's, you get this, sort of, this sense that it's, it's an overcoming in the moment of whatever the pressure is. The pressure is the suffering. And then there's this active overcoming. Best illustration I can think of comes from scuba diving. Has anybody ever done scuba diving here? Yeah, there's two of us. So I can say pretty much anything, and the rest of, us will, rest of them will buy it, except for you. But one thing I learned, very important rule in scuba diving, always keep breathing. <laughs> and I'll never forget how the instructor explained it. He said, the thing is, like, when you go down in the water, the pressure around you really changes. It gets greater. So if you hold your breath, and you could go deep enough um, and you know, that the pressure around you gets so strong that it can collapse your lungs. And, like, if you're also down 20 feet or something, 25 feet, and you breathe down there, because you have a regulator that regulates the air on your back to whatever the pressure of the water around you. And so if you breathe down 25 feet and then you let yourself come all the way up, but you don't exhale or breathe, the pressure gets less and less, and the pressure of the air in your lungs is still very big, and your lungs will keep expanding until they explode. Yeah, that's how you explain it to me. I never forget it. I always breathe when I'm scuba diving. I use up probably way too much air because I don't want my lungs to explode. <laughs> that's the idea, an active overcoming. And that's why God says, don't worry about tomorrow. You, you, you don't have, I'm not going to give you air for tomorrow. Yeah, no, no, that would, that would, that would be bad. If I gave you that high-pressured air for tomorrow in your lungs, they'd explode. You can't do it. It's it's active to the pressure around you. And I think this is what cripples us when I'm thinking about tomorrow and what's coming my way. But very seldom do I put God into the equation when I'm thinking about tomorrow. And that gets way too overwhelming. Because I plan without Him in the mix. Plan for high pressure, but no... Hupamone, no perseverance created in me, no, um, as the word is, uh, we might be hard-pressed, but we're not crushed. We might be struck down, but we're not destroyed. We have all that we need for what is coming our way. And so this now is a process. Rejoice in your suffering, Because suffering produces perseverance, and when perseverance has worked, it produces character, and this is the third step, character. Well, what is that? It's really, um, again, it has to be fleshed out other places in Scripture, because it's the word for sterling silver. It's refined silver, and we don't have these kind of processes today that we get to see, but... um, A silversmith knows it, that you have to heat it up, you know, because there's silver in this uh, contaminated stuff, and when you heat it, then the contaminants rise at the surface, and they dissipate, and then the the, the silversmith knows you can't heat it up too much either, but you know when it gets to a certain point, you can see a reflection in the dross, dross being gone of the silver, and then you know that's perfect. That's the word character. So when you become in Christ, all of Romans 1, 5, 1 through 2 is is true of you. You're arrived, you're accepted, you're uh, righteous in God's sight. But you also have a lot of other stuff. When you first became a Christian, you still had a lot of old stuff. Anybody say amen to that? Yeah. So the only way that goes is that has to be heated up. And Job uses this word. He says, um, when he has tried me, I will come forth as gold. That's the word dokamai, character. You'd say this person has a godly character, and it's not produced any other way. happens in the detour, the wilderness. That's God's business. And that says character, when it has worked its way, you know, now, problems produce perseverance. Perseverance produces character. Character produces hope. And it says that hope will never disappoint us. It's not this idea that um, I hope this will happen. It's sort of the opposite. It's like I have hope that even if our God doesn't deliver us from the fire, we still won't bow. That's hope. Not I hope he's going to spare me from the lion. Hope I really hope he does, that even if he doesn't, we know he can, but even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow. That, that is hope. And what's amazing about Romans 5 is that this is where these two things come together and become one. The verse in the beginning says, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, and then here, just a couple of verses later, our hope is made full by this process of suffering, perseverance, character, and hope. Hope is what God pours out in us, into our hearts by his Holy Spirit. That's what he gives us. Well, I have, over my life, come in contact with people uh, who are in this grip, and um, I get rather excited about it when I do, because I I know I've seen this long enough that it's, it's and you can you can hear it in people when they're in when they're in the midst of the wilderness that um, there's a, a brokenness that is in them and there's a it's a holy kind of a thing and it's God is preparing you for something and the evidence right now is that you can't see it at all the detour is taking you so far off you're just wanting to survive that's it just survive and you can't make it happen and. That, to me, is uh, evident in all of us, but some who have a deep and significant calling. It goes longer. Like a Moses, like a David, like a Joseph, like a Saul. And I remember when I first left uh, my job, and Hannah and I were married and moved out here, and the first ministry situation I was in was a disaster. I think I bailed right before I got fired, or maybe they fired me then. I I can't remember which came first, but they were inevitable both. And I was still in seminary, and I was like, uh, I tried to get my old job back as a stockbroker. I called my boss. I kept calling him, leaving messages, and he didn't return my calls, which uh, was weird because he really liked me, said, anytime you want to come back. But I said, there's a lot more integrity in the business world than there is in this Christian gig ministry thing. I, I know that. So I want to go back. Later on when I talked to him about it, he said, I never got any of those calls. I would have hired you back in a second. So God was interrupting the interference, you know, the the wires. But I read a book by Bobby Clinton, The Making of a Leader, and it just gave me enough hope to say that I wonder if this is part of the process. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe it is. And it gave me hope. So for you, there's a possibility too. And in your bulletin insert is a little slip of paper, and as we worship, uh, sing a couple more songs. Uh, I want to invite you to, while you're still here, to, to, um, to personalize it. What's the detour that's frustrating me most now? It might be something going on like today. It might be year three of something that's been going on, or longer. I just feel like I'm so far off of where I thought God was taking me. And the questions that I've been asking concerning it are, you know, what's wrong with me, and what's wrong with them, or what's wrong with it, or what's wrong with God? I I don't know what's been going on. And then what if the question were to change to, I wonder how God could use this experience to accomplish something deeper in me, or through me. So, think about that. You might pick this up again as you leave, but more likely you probably won't. So take some time and put something down. If God took all the energy to get you here today, oh my goodness, what did he have to do to get you here, huh? That must have been hard. You got sidetracked a thousand times. So that means he probably has something he's trying to comfort you with. So let's pray as the worship team comes. God, thank you that with you, there really are no detours. You're the destination. And Jesus said he even prayed Take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. So for whatever we may be up against, each person here, um, however this might apply, I pray that you would encourage us another step along the, the journey that. We don't see what you see, and that actually your eyes are right upon us. You didn't forget us. You're preparing us. You're making us closer to your image because you want to use us for something that will reveal more of your image. So we embrace it right now. We, we just embrace it. We, we're thankful that you would be concerned enough about us to not just put us out there to our own things and our own ways to actually form us into something much closer to what you saw before we were ever formed in our mother's womb. You saw us. You called us. You made us, fashioned us for a good work. We're really grateful for that. In the name of Christ we pray, amen.